0: Well welcome to the City Temple live stream. This is just one part of our Sunday worship gathering. And if you'd like to join us for our whole service via Zoom, then email us at info at city-temple.com. We are honored and privileged to hear the message preached today by Pastor Rod. Well, hallelujah. If you have your Bible with you, let's turn to First Corinthians, chapter 15. And before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak it into our hearts today and that your Holy Spirit would rest on me. Heal me, Lord, of this laryngitis that I can proclaim your word boldly and faithfully. We love you and praise you and pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Paul is writing here in Corinthians, and he's talking about the resurrection and about Jesus. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied." May God bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Well, last week I mentioned a blast from my childhood. Uh, There was a a television program called the A-Team. Now, one of the things I've learned about childhood television programs, you know, those that you liked when you were children, you tend not to like them when you get to be an adult. So I don't think I'd like it, maybe not as much anymore, but I watched it faithfully as a child. And one of the characters on the team, it was about a group of four uh, ex-army officers who were falsely accused of a crime who go around the country righting wrongs. And one of the colorful characters is a guy named Mr. T. And you should look him up online sometime. He had a mohawk, a big, dark-skinned guy, and, uh, and he had a lot of catchphrase. And one of his big catchphrases was, I pity the fool. You know, I pity the fool who thinks he's going to beat me up. I pity the fool who thinks his gun's bigger than my gun. And, you know, and, and so every week he was saying, I pity the fool, because he was big, you know. And uh, and so you got memes all over the Internet now that say, you know, I pity the fool who doesn't get his COVID vaccination. I pity the fool who, uh, you know, trusts this politician. It's all over the place. But... Uh, but it's kind of fun, you know. And so when I read this passage from Paul, the first thought, you know, comes into my mind. I was reflecting on it a few weeks ago, and I just, all of a sudden, it pops into my mind, you know, I pity the fool who trusts in Christ in this life only. And it's interesting, because, you know, nostalgia, I guess when you almost die, it makes you nostalgic, you know. You start thinking about things. And I began to think about a lot of the Christian songs that were old classics when I was growing up. Now, these songs weren't popular when I was growing up. They were popular probably the generation before me, but I tend to be rather backward in my development, you know. So I didn't become a real rock and roller until I was in my 20s. And, uh, you know, before then, it was kind of like swing and jazz and country and western. That's why everything I sing sounds like country. But I remember one of my mom's favorite songs was a song called I'll Fly Away. You know? I'll fly away, O glory. I'll fly away when I die. Hallelujah, by and by. I'll fly away. And I sang that at her funeral. There was another one I sang all the time called Mansion Over the Hilltop. It was about our mansion in heaven and uh, great hymn that I love, My Jesus I Love Thee. Uh, it ends up with, In mansions of glory and endless light I'll ever adore thee. And it's, it's amazing to me how so many of the songs would mention heaven. So many of the songs would mention the afterlife. So many of the songs that people used to sing back in the, say, the 1910s, the 1920s, the 1930s in the United States. That's where I grew up. uh, They were about heaven. And if you listen to Christian music today, very few of the songs talk about heaven. Very few of the songs talk about our eternal life. They're all about me and who I am and And those things aren't bad, by the way. I'm not criticizing. You know, I'm not one of those old guys that says, all the old stuff was so better. You know, and those young folks today, they couldn't sing their way out of a wet paper sack. No, I'm not saying that at all. But it's interesting how things have changed. And I've been reflecting on that. You know, why don't we talk about heaven very much as Christians? Why don't we talk about our eternal life? Why don't we talk about the prospects of where we're going when we die? You know, it used to be when you share the gospel with people, you'd talk about that. You'd say, listen, you know, Jesus died on the cross. Like Paul says here, Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And because of that, not only are we set free from sin now, we also get to have eternal life in heaven. Now, I remember as a kid thinking, what am I going to do, you know? Well, I'm sitting on, a, uh, sitting on a cloud with a harp, you know, strumming my harp, uh, and, you know, with my angel wings on, and then uh, get a song like Amazing Grace when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. I'm thinking, golly, if I'm doing nothing but sitting on a cloud for 10,000 years, that's going to be pretty boring. I don't think I want to do that. And I I had a misconception about what heaven, what our eternal life, what the kingdom is all about. And you know, now I understand it's nothing like that. It's going to be an eternity where we're not going to mark out time so it never gets boring. You know, in our lives, we kind of think, all the time is passing, I'm kind of bored. But if you're living in the moment, you never get bored. If you're living in the moment, you really enjoy life and you live it to the fullest. And eternity is about living in the moment forever with Jesus. That's pretty amazing. But we don't talk about it. And, you know, it used to be, listen, you got to turn or burn. You know? You don't want to die and go to hell. You don't want to spend eternity in a very hot place that's very dark and very difficult. And so we would say these things. But then all of a sudden, the whole talk about heaven was stopped. And the talk about hell kind of stopped. What was going on? Well, again, and I'm talking from in American context, and, and sadly, in many ways, global Christianity has been influenced by what's happened in American Christianity in the last 75 years, uh, or at least in Western Christianity in the last 75 years. What began to happen? Things began to change in the 1950s. And in the 1950s was when the people of the United States began to really prosper. It's when our houses got bigger, our wages got bigger, our quality of life got better. It was post-World War II. And our economy got strong. And you know, when people are prosperous, or at least when they feel they have the prospect of prosperity, the promise of eternal life doesn't really motivate them so much. You know, for my mom, growing up in poverty, having to leave school at 12 years old so she could work picking cotton in the cotton fields, having her hands ripped to shreds every day as a child, carrying a huge bag behind her, that got heavier and heavier as the day went on. When that is your life, when you look to when you look forward to Christmas time, because you know at Christmas I might get an orange in my stocking, which is something my family can't afford the rest of the time of the year. When you're surrounded with that reality, you're looking forward to heaven. But when all of a sudden you got all the good stuff you want, you got your washer, you got your dryer, you got your fridge, you got your cooker, you got the things of life, or you're going to get possibly get those things, then heaven doesn't start to motivate you. And back in the 1950s, more and more Americans became prosperous. And then the churches became more and more like social clubs. Well, they were still preaching the gospel then, but they were also becoming known more for the community work they were doing, for their bake sales and their barbecues and things like that. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with those things. But that became the center of church life, and most Americans in that time identified as Christians. More than 90% of the people of the United States in the 1950s, if you'd asked them, what faith are you, they'd say, I'm a Christian. And so in that context, you're not really thinking about winning the lost anymore. You're not really thinking about proclaiming the gospel. And then the churches during that season began to compete with each other. You know, if you're in a a context say, like an environment uh, where Islam is the dominant religion, you don't have the luxury of competing with other churches. But churches were competing with each other, trying to recruit Christians to the church. And they'd, they'd recruit them by you know really nice ad campaigns. And say, you know, our bake sales are better. Our barbecues are bigger. Our potluck suppers or more potlucky, you know, whatever it was. And they were starting to get, try to get people to come in, and they were looking at trying to get other Christians to come to their church, to move from one church to another church. And that spirit of competition just became full. I mean, churches became full of that. It still exists today, by the way. I remember, I've told this story before, uh, a friend of mine who used to be down the road at uh, Holy Sepulchre, a guy named David, he came to me one, one time, and we we had lunch together, and he said, "You know, Rod, uh, I don't want you to think I know you've got the house of prayer that's going on there at City Temple, and uh, we're going to start a prayer room, and I didn't, don't want you to think that we're we're being in competition with you." Uh, and I said, "Well, David, I said when ninety percent." of the people of London are born again believing in Jesus, following Jesus, we can talk about competition. Until that day comes, we're not in competition. But churches got caught up in this whole idea about being in in competition. And so because of all of this, the prosperity and what's going on in the churches, people were no longer attracted to the heaven promise of the gospel. So Christians began to try to focus on the earthly benefits of the gospel. It was during that time that uh, a guy named Bill Bright, uh, who has gone to be with the Lord, he's a great lover of Jesus. I mean, I honor this guy. So I'm not speaking a criticism here. But it was during this time that Bill Bright developed something he called the four spiritual laws. And the four spiritual laws have been used in various places around the world since the 1950s as a way to draw people to Jesus. And they've been very, very effective in doing that. They're a great tool. I encourage you to look it up online and learn it. But the first of the four spiritual laws was very telling and was a product of that time and that is this first spiritual law God loves you now we all like that and has a wonderful plan for your life now notice it starts out God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life that's talking about your life here and at the time In the 1950s, 60s, 70s in the United States, in that season of prosperity, that sounded pretty good. So, I come to Jesus and the good life that I'm already living becomes all that much better. And it was a very powerful thing to help draw people to Jesus Christ, but you notice the shift to the focus. And then, many churches started to brand themselves. Branding became important. And right now, today, you can grow a big church if you have the right brand, and you promote that brand. Not if you promote Jesus, but if you promote the brand. And there's a lot of churches growing quite large because of their branding. And churches began to compete with the world for who could offer the best benefits. And so the spirit that was operating, still operates today in a lot of churches, is that you come to Jesus, and your life is going to be better than it is if you don't come to Jesus. You come to Jesus, and uh, it's like playing the country and western song backwards, you get your wife back you get your dog back, you get your truck back, you know, everything comes back to you. And and the idea was, you know, that we need to follow Jesus because Jesus is going to make our life in this world really fabulous. And our songs began to change. Now understand, it's very true that the gospel brings benefits for living in this world. i don't want to say it doesn't it actually does i mean we can see that one mental health benefits i was just reading a book by uh, a very dear friend of mine named jenny rogers she's an executive coach uh, one of the best in the world and she just put out a new book and uh, and one of the chapters is about coaching for life purpose now when i first read that i thought this is coaching a live porpoise, but it's not about dolphins. It's about people having their life purpose. And uh, one of the comments she makes in, in her, and she's an atheist, okay? She's a good friend, she's an atheist. We're praying for her. I always feel like she's getting close to Jesus. Uh, but she says that the whole issue of life purpose is so much more uh, vital For people today because of the decline of religious faith that it used to be that people would have a sense of their purpose of life they'd get that from their belief in jesus christ and we will get that as christians if we're following jesus but i you know ask why do we have so many problems such an increase in mental health issues in our world today an increase in anxiety, an increase in self-harm. Why? It's because people aren't following Jesus. There is a mental benefit, a mental health benefit from following Jesus. There's also something that missiologists, people who studied missions, learned many, many years ago. And it's a phenomena that we call redemption and lift. And what they observed was that in many countries of the world, when people chose to follow Christ, especially men in their families, started following Jesus, that the well-being of the family and the material prosperity of the family would actually increase. You say, why is that? Is that because God is giving them more money? No, it wasn't. What they found is that these men that would go out and spend their paycheck drinking alcohol with other men would stop doing that. They'd start to come home, take care of their families, invest financially in their families, and the family situation would improve. That's benefit. There are social support systems that were in our societies because of people following Jesus today. So. There's many benefits for living, but we also need to understand the gospel does not promise in this life material wealth. It does not promise complete healing. It does not promise that you're going to have a healthy family. It does not, or that you'll even have a family. It doesn't promise us that we're going to have a spouse. It doesn't promise us that we're going to have children. It doesn't promise us that we're going to have a good job. Uh, It doesn't promise us that we won't have problems. The gospel doesn't make any of these promises. In fact, the gospel does promise that in this life we will have trouble. In this life we will have persecution. In this life we will experience conflict. How about that? You know, come to Jesus and suffer. Now, that's, that's what we should be preaching out at, you know, the square, Paternoster Square by St. Paul's. Jesus died on the cross, and you can come and hang on a cross too. Follow Jesus. But that was Jesus' message. That was Jesus' message. It wasn't, hey, everybody, come on, I'm going to make your life easier. Jesus told us many times come follow me by the way it's going to be really hard and it's going to hurt a lot a number of years ago excuse me a number of years ago I decided to amend the first spiritual law because I do believe it's true excuse me a second I do believe it's true. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and it's going to hurt, no, but it's, it's the law. Pardon me. So that really raises a question. I mean, it's a big question here. Why follow Jesus? Why follow Jesus? You know, if it's not going to give us a better life than what the world could give us, and if in fact, in some cases, we could turn to Jesus and be worse off financially. I have a very good friend in Croatia. He built up a very, very large business. It was extremely prosperous. Then he became a Christian and all of a sudden, he realized that he could no longer cheat the government out of the taxes that he had supposed to be been paying them. You see, he built a large business because he never paid taxes, and he committed not only to starting to pay taxes, but to pay back all the tax that he had not paid. Nobody found him out. But he made the commitment and he followed through with it and he lost his business. And the last I heard, he was driving a taxi. Again, that's not something we normally put on posters to try to recruit people to following Jesus Christ but that's the reality so why do we follow Jesus why surrender your life to Jesus Christ and become his disciple well the first thing is that Jesus has risen from the dead as a seal on the truth of the gospel in other words Jesus is true. His message is true. Christ is true. The gospel is true. Now, as Paul said, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. But Christ has been raised from the dead. Of all the ancient historical facts, that is one of the most well-established ancient historical facts Jesus Christ died on the cross and was buried and on the third day rose bodily from the grave. That is true and it demands a response from everyone. Either you accept the truth and base your life on truth or you base your life on what is not true, on what is false, on what is temporary on what does not last. And you might enjoy it for a moment, but that joy will always be fleeting. So we follow Jesus because it's true. Second thing, as Paul observed here, he said, you know, by God's grace I am what I am. And I'd say, Second reason we follow Jesus is by God's grace we are who we are. And following Jesus will make the best of ourselves. Now understand, I'm not saying that following Jesus is going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well it it will make you wise, but not necessarily healthy or wealthy. But in following Jesus Christ, you're following the one who created you you're following the one whose grace is lavished on your life you're following the one who will enable you by his grace to become the absolute best version of yourself that you can be if you really follow him now the problem is a lot of people talk about following Him. they claim to be Christians but they don't follow Jesus But if we really follow him, by God's grace, not only are we the people we are, but by God's grace, he enables us to be fully the people we were created to be. And we know we want to live so that, as Paul says, that God's grace toward us was not in vain. We want to live to honor Jesus. And the third reason that we follow Jesus, that we surrender our lives, and it's we must really regain this as Christians, is we have a living hope that we will be raised with Christ unto eternal life in an unshakable kingdom of love and joy. That is our living hope. I don't preach the gospel for my hope in this world. Clearly, preaching the gospel has not made me wealthy. Preaching the gospel has not enabled me to build a bigger church building. I preach the gospel because I know that it's part of this eternal destiny that I have. And that's why we all live for Jesus. We live for Jesus knowing that we have an eternal destiny that we are looking forward to a kingdom, to a time when we rule and reign with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, where our bodies don't wear out, where our relationships don't go south, where our, our fellowship with God is never hindered. We will live like that living in the moment for all eternity, living at the point of our highest self in Christ Jesus for all eternity. That's why Paul would say, I pity the fool who lives only for Christ in this world. I pity the fool, because we're all to be pitied as fools if we're only living for Christ here. We have the promise of an eternal destiny with Jesus, or we have the promise of the pain of a Christless eternity. You can call it hell. I don't care what you call it. But without Jesus, it's not worth it. Without Jesus, there is no existence worth living. We have that promise of eternal life. One of the phrases that really annoys me, apparently it was coined by uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, but uh, he said something like this, some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. I really hate that. I think a lot of Christians that quote that. But is it true? No, I mean, some people can be, you know, so caught up. You know, will Jesus come tomorrow? Uh, will he come on a Sunday or a Monday? And they can get all these debates about this, uh, you know, and get really caught up in that. Uh, yeah, OK, you can get caught up in, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, And will my harp be a 10-string lyre or a 12-string lyre? You know, and I, I don't care. You know that's that's unimportant, uh, and probably we won't have liars. You know everybody knows we'll have electric guitars and drums. You know because Jesus is really into rock and roll. I think, at least I hope so. I don't know. You see, it doesn't matter. And yeah, I guess you can get caught up in all that stuff, and like it, that's silly. But the truth is, throughout history, if you want to look at Christians. Who really changed the world. And I mean Christians like George Mueller who fed and housed thousands of orphans. Christians who started charities, who went to the ends of the earth and willingly laid down their lives. People like the Judson's that brought the gospel to Myanmar. People, men and women, throughout history that have made a difference, that have changed the world, that have made the biggest difference in some of the most practical ways for people living in this world. They were men and women whose minds were set on heaven who knew they had an eternal destiny in Jesus Christ, who knew where they were going, and who knew that they had a responsibility to live for Jesus in this world, no matter the cost, no matter the difficulty, no matter the pain, because it wasn't about getting rewards in this world. It was about living for Jesus boldly and fully until Jesus came again, and we were all collected up into heaven to be with him for all eternity. That's our reality. And knowing where we're going, not that our bodies are wearing down, not that we could one day die of COVID complications, but knowing that no matter what happens to us, we have our destiny in Jesus Christ. That makes all the difference. Father God, we love you and praise you. And I pray, Father God, that you would stir in the hearts and minds of anybody watching this talk. If they have not fully surrendered their lives to Jesus, lead them to do it right now. Just saying, Jesus, I offer myself to you. I belong to you. Thank you for dying on the cross, paying the price of my sins. Forgive me and cleanse me and fill me with your resurrection life in the power of your spirit. Gracious God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we love you. And I thank you because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can know that we have an eternal destiny with you and other brothers and sisters of Jesus, filled with love and joy, living in the moment for all eternity. We love you and praise you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.